Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with his former skipper, Davey Johnson. Uh, that's 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 fantastic. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, we welcome my former skipper. As a player, who's a four-time All-Star and a two-time World Series champion. As a skipper, he was a World Series champion and has been named Manager of the Year twice. He's a member of the Mets and Orioles Hall of Fames, respectively. Ladies and gentlemen, Davey Johnson. Davey, thanks for coming on the program. Nice to be here. Long time, man. Long time. I got so much to cover with you. Uh, <laughs> right out of the shoot, true or false? I read a story that a young Davy Johnson, and I, I was just thinking to myself, hand, doing this to you when I played for you and said, say, you gave Earl Weaver a printout, a, a program that you developed in uh, on those late 60 Baltimore Oriole ball clubs. Um, Telling them how the lineup should shake out. Is that true or false? That's true. I, I did a – the uh, brewery had a, a big old IBM 360 computer, and I punch card in about eight different lineups uh, with me hitting anywhere from one to eight. And uh, I found that the one where I hit second scored about 80 more runs. And so I handed it over to Weaver and said, man, this looks like a damn good lineup, bro. And uh, he took it and threw it right in the trash can. But I know damn well he got it back out because he liked stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I was I always thought the lineup always could be moved around a little bit with on-base guys and guys that drove in runs and stuff. So I had fun with Earl doing that. You were doing analytics before there was analytics. Yeah, I was doing all that stuff. I, fact is, even in the minor leagues, I uh, when I was managing the minor leagues, I kept track of uh, who the pitcher pitched to as a catcher. Uh, you know, left and right matchups and stuff like that. And um, I kind of used that whenever I would, you know, decide on pitching staffs and and who I would use. And the biggest thing on my analytics was that they don't do today was that I wanted my uh, pitchers to have the, the regular rest time. You know, I mean, I'd use a young pitcher that was a starter in long relief because I could pitch him a couple, two or three innings and then give him two or three days off. And uh, I, I went with that, you know, my whole career because I wanted to make sure that they got the proper rest when they came up against guys that used to get out. And then when I see all that stuff going on today where, you know, 22-year-olds have guys pitching two days in a row, even if they're young pitchers, not used to pitching, but every uh, pitching one day and then have an off day and then pitching the next day. Um, If a guy went two innings, I gave him two days off. And, um, they, they don't take that in consideration with the new analytics this year and last year. So I'm against all that, what they're doing. 
David Johnson, born in Orlando, Florida. Uh, you grew up in Texas. Uh, I want to hear about Davy Johnson's childhood. What was Davy like as a kid? Well, that was easy. I was an army brat. Um, I didn't see my father until I was two years old because he's a prisoner of war. And I was born in 43, and he came back in 45. It's kind of a funny story because um, I came around to manage the Washington Nationals in, in 2011, and I get a phone call from the AAA president, um, and he calls me up and he said, Hey, Dave, I'm sending you a picture of me and your father on the steps of the Gugalog. I said, well, you are? Yeah, and he sent me a picture of he and my father on the steps of the Gugalog when they were imprisoned in 43 to 45. And uh, he was, at the time, he was the president. He was 93 years old. And uh, so I went up there and talked to him. And uh, I talked to him when he retired at 97. And he passed away at 102. Um, but um, I thought that was really kind of interesting that I, the last club I was going to manage was in an organization where the president of the club was prisoner of war with my father. But I enjoyed, you know, being an army brat. I grew up, you know, having to make new friends all everywhere I went. Um, I was born in Florida and raised in Texas and I went to Texas A&M because my father went to Florida. It was all men. My mother went to Florida State, all women. And I wanted to go somewhere to play basketball and baseball and not have any women to worry about. So I went to A&M. <laughs> and because um, playing basketball, baseball, and actually what it turned out to be is I went to Texas A&M on a basketball scholarship. And uh, nobody knew that, but... Uh, I told Tom Chandler, the baseball coach, I said, you offered me a four-year scholarship when we sat down and signed it and said, one year. And I looked at my eye and I said, this just says one-year scholarship, coach. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, son, that's what's wrong with the youth today. You're all looking for security, not an opportunity. I said, that's good. Let me sign it. And uh, then when I made the basketball team as a freshman starting guard, they transferred my scholarship to basketball. I didn't mind it because uh, I got to stay in Henderson Hall, which is a better dorm. It had a swimming pool and a chef in the dorm. So I thought that was a good deal. But then after two years at A&M, I just signed. It was time for me to sign professionally. And I signed with the Orioles. So you went off. So you went to Texas and you played hoops for two years. You started for two years. Yeah, I started as a freshman and as a sophomore. Oh, that is awesome. I didn't even know that. Yeah. I'm learning I'm uh, learning new things all the time, Davey. I'm still learning. Love, it's unbelievable. I love well, we all do. I love <laughs> basketball and um you know, um beside the fact it was a great dorm and, and uh whatever. But um I was in there with the basketball and the football players and Henderson Hall. But uh, you know, after two years I decided, you know, it's time for me to go go out there and do what I want to do, and that's be a professional baseball player. So as far as basketball, if you would have pursued that, was there any chance or was the writing on the wall? You knew I could play at the college level, but baseball's my ticket. Yeah, I did. I mean, I love basketball because it was a sport you could, you know, give 100% effort. And, um, 
you can see the results. And baseball is not like that all the time. You can give 100% and not be 100% successful. But I really liked it. And um, then um, got a chance to sign. The fact is, I went to Corpus Christi after my sophomore year. And um, the scouts were all asking me, just say you're going to sign. Back then, all you had to do is say you're going to sign. And I came home after being at the beach, and I came drove up to my house in, in Larkwood in San Antonio. And there were two scouts, Steve Phillips and Jim Russo, waiting on me. I invited them in. It was, I think, 11 o'clock. And about 2 o'clock that night, I signed to go to Stockton, California, A-ball. Stockton Ports. Start my career. Yeah, Stockton Ports. Stockton Ports, and you had a lot of you had a lot of success in the minor leagues. I was I was checking out the numbers, yeah. but this yeah. is where I this is where I get confused though, and you got to set me straight on your on your whole story. Sure. Uh, you went to Johns Hopkins and Trinity University. Yeah. Where did you squeeze that in after your two years at Texas A and M? Was that during well, the minor leagues, during the well, big leagues? No, it, it, you know. Um, one of the things that I made sure I got from the Oilers when I signed was uh, scholarship money. And they were going to pay me $1,500 a year uh, to go back to school and get my education. So I'd play a season, and then if I didn't go to winter ball, I'd, I'd go to uh, school. And when I was in Baltimore, I went to Johns Hopkins for one semester and, you know, I uh, got really involved in the computer up at Johns Hopkins. And then uh, I lived in, my mother and family lived in San Antonio. So next time came around, I went to Trinity University. And, uh, and I, I remember I remember going to him, the head of the uh, dean uh, that I had at the time. And I said, man, I got 120 credits and I'm a sophomore. I said, what do I need to do to get a degree? Because I, I want to get a degree. And, you know, along with being a professional ball player, I want a college degree. And the guy told me, well, you're closest to getting a degree in mathematics. And uh, I said, well, because they had a good home building department and a good veterinary department. I said, man, let me go ahead and do it. And so I transferred over and just took nothing but finish off my degree. And, I ended up with 160 credits and a, a college degree at Trinity University. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? 
Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E. Bet $1 on either team to score and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code Boone this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And we're back with three-time World Series champ, Davey Johnson. So like I said, I was looking at your minor league number. You're hitting 300 everywhere you go, which is not always the case. Um, You get to the big leagues in 1965, and you kind of get your cup of coffee there. Uh, And then we get into 66, and you end up third in the rookie of the year. That's a big year for you guys. We recently had Jim Palmer on the program, and and, uh, he gave me his version of that 66 season. Um, but that was your rookie year. And, and uh, yeah. next thing you know, you're standing in the world series. Everybody doesn't get to do that. And you know, the, the guests that come on, you know, on the weekly basis, it, the discussion gets brought up all the time about, uh, and especially with coming off the heels of the world series. Now, uh, how tough it is to win a world series, let alone get to the world series, but when, you know, you got to, to be a part of three championships teams. Uh, you've been close a lot of times as a player, as a manager, but man, those, those things are tough. You know, I got to, I got to go to a world series, never won one. And, and, and it just, I can't emphasize uh, how much, how, how special they are and, and well, everything just has to go right. Really and you got to have the dogs too. Yeah, it was really special for me. Uh, in 65, I played a little bit third base for Brooks Robinson. He had a broken thumb or something. And I hated it over there. I mean, the ball came down on you hard. Um, so um, anyway, the next year I came back and I was the second baseman that I was competing with, a guy named Jerry Adair. And he, like, only had five errors in the whole year in 65. And uh you know, I said I wanted to play second base, and I, said, I told him, I said, you know, I want to play second base. So they started me, and they didn't trade it there until uh, after a trip to Minnesota where I went, I got seven hits or something in the series and raised my average up to about 260. And um, then they decided to trade Jerry to there. And so then I felt very good. Uh, but then we won the world series in 66 and um, I remember we're playing the Dodgers in the 66 world series. And um, uh, they're talking about how great Koufax is and he didn't, he pitched the second game and uh, I faced him in the first two pitches. He threw me were like about 99. I thought it was going to be low and away. They rose up and hit the outside corner. And then I, he threw me a curveball, and I popped it up. And anyway, in the seventh inning, I lined the base hit to right field, and he took Koufax out. And so uh, he retired in the offseason, and the next season I went to him in spring. I said, hey, Sandy, how you doing? Good to see you. Guess who got the last hit off you? And he said, uh, you. And then, and then I knew I was washed up, Davey. <laughs> <laughs> if you, that's what Greg Maddox said to me at the end. I started to hit him, hit him well. I said, "Doggy, I'm getting you." He goes, "Yeah, you're getting me when I stink." <laughs> I, I laughed. I said, "Hey, yeah. it's better not. I got to look at those numbers forever. I got to pat it as much as I can. Keep lobbing it no in kidding. there." 
No kidding. But that that infield was was pretty special. With you over at second base, obviously Brooks Robinson, who I don't know what yeah. he went fifty Gold Gloves, and then uh, you had yeah. Mark Belanger, who was the the light hitter, but he was a beloved guy and, and a great shortstop. Talk about that infield a little bit. Well, you know, I I'm, I could be wrong, but I think in '66, uh, Aprisio was still the shortstop. Oh, Belanger wasn't yeah. there yet. No. Oh, and, uh, okay. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're right. No, I'm wrong. That's poor research yeah, and from anyway, the uh, podcast crew. Uh, <laughs> then the next year, it was Belanger, and uh, he had the greatest hands in the world. Didn't wear a cup or anything, and uh, I, I was amazed at that. And uh, we became real close friends. And but uh, uh, you know, winning and winning the World Series in '66, and then. Uh, 67, we struggled a little bit in 68, too. Uh, but uh, we came back and won in 2000. And now in 69, we won. You, you, so, go, you go 68, you make your first All-Star team. 69, mm-hmm. you're an All-Star again, and you win your first gold glove. And then 70, you're an All-Star, you're a gold glover, and then you win your second World Series in 1970. Yeah. Um, for a guy that That's hasn't fine. won two World Series, you win one as a rookie. Coming, to, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. No. And then just four years later, uh, you win it again. Was was either one more special, or were they just just as sweet? Well, what was kind of funny is in 1969 we were playing the Mets, and um, you know they had us picked as a better team and. Everything conceivable happened in 69. I mean, ball blew back to Swoboda in right field. The ball blew away from our guys when it was hit out there. And, uh, you know, we lost in 69. I I made the last out in that series off Nolan Ryan. I flew out to left field. Um, And then in 1970, we're playing a powerhouse. The the Cincinnati club was had a powerhouse. And, uh, great offensive ball club and we knew it was going to be a tough series and um, we we beat them on I think it was five games um, to win the World Series but that was uh, that was great yeah that's it that's exactly that what uh, that's what that's what Jim Palmer said he had he said in 69 they had the, you had the better team you should have won and then in 70 uh, you were up against a tougher team and you did win for me, it wins a win, yep. Davey. Wins a win. Yep. Right, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> I, you, you know, it was wonderful being in those situations. And, um, you know, we we took pride in our defense. And um, I remember I I used to have to tell Boog Powell to move off the line once in a while because he liked to stay close to the line. But um, that was about it. We, we had a great defense and, you know, great infield. You know, so... Uh, made it easy for our pitching staff. 1971, you win another gold glove. And uh, after the 72 season, you get traded to the Braves. And um, 
I don't know. That 73 season's pretty, pretty awesome. You're an all-star and you hit 43 home runs. And I remember when I, when I came to play for you in Cincinnati, I was always thinking, Davey hit 43. I got to hit 43 one day. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> I never, I never made it there. I got the 37, yeah. but I never hit 43. What a team that was. I think you had three guys that hit 40 Evans, yeah. uh, Hammer and Hank and yourself. Right. Uh, tell me a little bit about that team, that magical power year for you. And, uh, you know, we recently lost Hank. Um, he, he's over the years, you know, I got to play for or for the Braves in, in 1999. And Hank was around quite a bit then. He had his office mm-hmm. at, at Turner Field. And I really started to look at Hank Aaron because, and I've shared this before on the podcast, Everybody knows Hank as, oh, Hank Aaron. You know, everybody thinks of him as, oh, he's the home run king. He's the home run king. Hank Aaron was so much more than that as a baseball player. Uh, He was one of the best players to ever put a uniform on. You got to see him up close and personal. Uh, Talk a little bit about that that season, the 43 home run season, and talk about Hank Aaron a little bit. Well, you know, um, I, I, I... when you're on a team with a great player like Hank Aaron, you, you watch everything he does. And I watched everything he did. He played right field and I played second base. And um, I watched him in BP. He he would hit, you know, hard hit line drive ground balls that would take two hops getting out of the infield. He very seldom hit a home run in batting practice. And um, he, he was just a great hitter. And, um, I remember, you know, watching him take BP and sometimes he'd swing at balls on the strike zone. I'd ask him why he did that. He said, I just wanted to see where my bat was. It passed the ball um, on the outside part of the plate. So he was a very smart hitter. And uh, he was a great defensive player. And he, was, he did everything very well. But uh, watching him take the barrel of the bat to the ball taught me more about hitting than anything because – you know, the shortest distance between the ball coming to the plate is a straight line. And he would take it right to the ball and hit, basically hit the right through the top of the ball and hit line drives. And that's what I became. I mean, I, I, I loved the ball down, but I would drop the head on it and hit a line drive or a fly ball um, more than hit a ground ball. And um, I, I, I led the club with 43 home runs in 73 and Henry Aaron had taken a couple of days off toward the end of the season and he had 39 home runs and Evans hit 40. And so we asked him, Henry, I think there was two games to play. I said, Henry, it'd be nice if we had three guys hitting 40. And, and so Henry said he'd play and we knew what was going to happen first time up he's going to hit a home run and he's going to come out because they wanted they were using that home run going ahead of Ruth as a fan thing and everybody would come out and see him break the record and so he tied it and then they had to wait until the next year for him to break it I guess you spent three years in uh, or two years I think in Atlanta and then yeah. This is really interesting to me. Um, when I was on when I was on the Mariner team in uh, 2001 and the 9/11 hit, as everybody knows. But that next year, we were scheduled to 
go to Japan and open the season. We ended up getting the the trip canceled because they thought it, it was it was too soon and and you know they were worried about the safety of the trip but i was really looking forward to going especially because that 2001 team uh was you know was when ichiro came over and the fanfare that yeah. he brought with him and all the and i just thought it'd be cool to go to japan and see what it was like i never got to go you went over and played for the tokyo giants um yeah. how was that over there playing and, and and you hear a lot of talk I've, I've had some buddies that have played over there and they give me some their some of their experiences um the American ball player versus the Japanese player. It's almost like there's two sets of rules from what I hear. What was your experience? Well, I was very lucky coming up as a player. Um, I was with the, in the American league a long time. And then I asked the general manager, uh, you know, trade me to Atlanta. I want to see what the national league's like. And so he did trade me over to Atlanta. And then at Atlanta, I was there a couple of years and, we played uh, the Tokyo Giants in spring training, and the general manager uh, of the Giants was with the club, and he talked to me. He said, do you want to come to Japan? We'll give you a good salary, and you can play for the Tokyo Giants. I said, sure. And so I'll never forget it. Eddie Robinson was the general manager of the Braves, and um, I, I said, told him, I said, I'm ready to go over there. And uh, he said, okay, we'll sell you over there. And they offered 160000 for me. And so I let, I let him put me on waivers. You had to go on waivers. To, if any club claimed you, uh, they could get you for, I think, 25000 And uh, anyway, one club claimed me, the Oakland A's. And uh, I remember getting a phone call from Finley and a guy named Bear Bryant. And Bear Bryant was the coach at A&M when I was there. And Bear Bryant says to me, he was a football coach at A&M, he says, Dave, you're an American, you don't want to go to Japan. I said, well, for they're offering to double my salary. I was making 50000 they offered to double it to 100 And I said, I, it's kind of hard to turn that kind of thing down. And the Bear said, well, we love you in Oakland, but it's all up to you. And so I... I turned down the uh, the waiver claim for Oakland, and I knew by doing that I'd be a free agent. And so I uh, I denied them, so I was a free agent. And then uh, Eddie Robinson said, "Well, I'm going to sell you over there." I said, "No, you're not." I said, "I'm a free agent, Mr. Robinson." And if I decide to go, I'll be on my own. So I called up the general manager of the Tokyo Giants and said, you guys want to pay me 160 grand instead of the Braves because I'm a free agent? He said, yes. So I, I said, send me the money and I'm coming. <laughs> so I'll be on a flight. They sent me 160000 And being a nice guy, I went into the office of Eddie Robinson and gave him a check for 10000 because I said that should cover my salary while I was here. And uh, then I went off to Japan. Wow. How, I got how, how was it playing? How good, how good was the, the Japanese league then compared? You're well, coming from the big it, leagues. Know, it was very good. You know, they, uh, the one thing they uh, 
players, they trained us hard. I mean, we had to run, do cartwheels. We had to do all kinds of stuff even before we started taking batting practice at ground balls. And um, um, the fans were very much into it. And, uh, you know, I was on a great team with the Orioles. I like, was was kind of like, you know, I, I was sitting behind those guys when both of them broke Ruth's record. So that's a nice trivia question. But um, I really liked it over there. And we won. And uh, so it was a great experience. And I was there, I guess, I think two years, maybe maybe three. I don't even remember. And then uh, um, I decided I wanted to come back and play for the Phillies. So I told them I was going back and, and went back home and called the Phillies and they signed me. I played for the Phillies. So you're coming off, you're playing with Hank Aaron, and now you're playing with Sadahara O. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I got to have a, you got to give me an O, give me an O story. Well, you know, he he had that front leg kick where he picked his front leg early, early off the ground, kind of stood on his back leg. But, and you'd think you could get a fastball by him inside. No way. Uh, and you, you you think he couldn't handle balls away? No way. He was just a great hitter, and um, you know he was fun to watch. Um, but uh, he was one outstanding player. I mean, he he would he would have hit seven hundred home runs in America. Phillies, you come back to Philly, and that's where I remember you as a little kid. You know, and and I was probably seven, eight. You played with with dad uh, with yeah. the Phillies in 77 and 78. Um, then you, I think midway through the 78 season, you head to the Cubs. And that's the last time you played in the big leagues. But the 79 team that interests me is this. What is this Miami Amigos? Miami Amigos. You're a player manager. Yeah. Uh, what was that all about? Well, um, you know, I enjoyed uh, what happened was I was playing in um, in in Chicago for the Phillies, and I was on first base, and um, uh, I forget who hit it. They hit a double down the right field line, and I was sent to score. And uh, Larry Cox, the catcher, was there blocking the plate, and I went to run over him, and he ducked. And so the t- my whole top half went over his head, and then he hit my feet, and they went over my head, and my feet hit the back of my head while I was sliding it home. And man, I knew something bad was wrong uh, with my back. Uh, so I I checked with a doctor in um, I think it was the NFL the Miami Dolphins. Um, crew they sent me in and I had a ruptured L5 and S1 and so I knew I was going to be in some problem until I had it back uh, operated on and so they traded I, I asked to be traded the cup they traded me over there I played a little bit I remember I did hit a pinch hit home run off Carlton uh, <laughs> and then after the year I said I'm going to have to have my back operated on. So I said, I might as well go down to Miami where they, I can have that doctor down there operate on me. And uh, I got an offer from a 
agent that said the Miami Amigos are looking for a manager, player manager, and would I go? I said, sure. The old Miami Amigos was like a ball, I think. And um, and because I, I was ready to go into managing, and I did. I managed there, and uh, we were that league folded after about eighty games, and we were up like about fifteen games. And then uh, the season was over. I went home, and then about two months later, I get a phone call from the Mets asking me if I wanted to manage in the Texas League. I said, sure, yeah, I do. My mom's, all my brothers and sisters are in San Antonio. I said, sure, I do. They said, well, it's not in Texas. It's in Jackson, Mississippi. I said, well, that's not too bad. And uh, so I signed with to manage the Jackson Club in Mississippi. And uh, and uh, went out and managed them. We won, we won the Texas League Championship. And uh, then they came after me and wanted me to manage in AAA. And I did, and we won the AAA management. Uh, you know, the we played the American Association and the Pacific Association at the end to see who was the champion. And I won that. And then the next year, I was managing the Mets in 84. And, and uh, yeah, you started your career. Uh, it, it all starts there for you from the managerial side. and. Yeah. You know, that's pretty big time. And, and, you know, we'll get to the 86 in, in a minute. But uh, you've had a lot of those guys in the minor leagues. We had we had Dwight Gooden on the show, and he talked about conversations he had with you. And he said, Davey told me that he's going to take me to the big leagues the next year. And he said, I wasn't really planning on it. But he ends up making the team when, when you take over the Mets. You had Gooden yeah. and Strawberry and, and Kevin Mitchell, who you also had in Cincinnati uh, during my time uh, with you there. Wally Backman. Um, talk about those players that end up being a part of that that big Mets organization in the mid '80s, but watching them grow in the minor leagues. Well, you know, you know, it's it's real easy to judge talent. I mean, anybody in baseball can judge talent. Um, I think the biggest thing is is judging the makeup of the player with the talent. And I remember. Uh, Brian Giles was a second baseman uh, in AAA and in the big leagues with uh, Wally Bachman. And Brian Giles had a great arm. He was great footwork. He everything. But he'd, he, you could catch him in the outfield swinging at shadows and stuff. Uh, but uh, Bachman was just a grinder. I said, Wally, you need to take a lot of ground balls because you're a little little hard on your with your hands on the ground balls. Just take a bunch of ground balls. He took about a hundred a day, like just like I ordered him to, and he ended up. I picked him to be the second baseman over Giles because of makeup. He was just gonna, he wanted to be the best he could be, and I had a lot of players like that. Mitchell, you know, I couldn't find a position for him, but I got him 350 at bats and he hit three. 300 and something. Uh, I wanted to make Mitchell an everyday player and, and Cashin thought he was a bad influence on Strawberry and Doc. And I said, no, he's a good influence. He doesn't drink or smoke and he's going to beat up anybody that does. You know, he came from that tough area of San Diego. 
and you can't trade him. Well, anyway, they, he went and above me and traded him for Kevin McReynolds. And then, of course, Mitchell went on to be an MVP for the Giants and great hitter down the road. And then management also traded McDowell and Dykstra, guys that I said, Dykstra's going to be great once he quits trying to hit home runs as a leadoff hitter. And uh, they traded him anyway. But uh, those were two bad trades that I was against when I was with the Mets. But uh, we had, we had, you know, I knew that, like, going into the season in 85, I knew we had a lot of holes in the bullpen. Like in 85, we got outscored by the opposition 18 runs. Yet we were 18 games over 500. We won 90 games my first year. Fixed some of the bullpen in the offseason. Not all of it, but most of it. The next year, we won 98 games. And uh, I said, man, we're just a couple players short. And then we went out, and, and I picked the players by hand. I picked uh, Tuffle, because Bachman had trouble with uh, right-handers, right-hand, uh, left-hand pitchers, him hitting left, right-handed. And also, Howard Johnson had trouble hitting right-handed. So I picked up Tuffle and Ray Knight. And now... If they brought in a left-handed pitch to Howard Johnson or Bachman, I had two really good right-handed hitters to hit against him. And and, and even in the spring, I said, boys, we're not only going to win this year, we're going to dominate. And we did. We won 108 games and then on to win the World Series. Uh, But it was just about knowing your team and knowing when you had all the pieces in place. And once you had that, it was... Let's go, boys. Let's give it to them. And there we went. You had some. You had some great players. I mean, you had Gary Carter. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Lenny Straw. You had you had George Foster on that team. Yeah. Uh, good and darling Ojeda. You had Sid Fernandez. I remember as a kid watching him going, "Wow, yeah. he looks nasty." He had that real unique delivery. Jesse Orozco yeah. in the pen. Rick Aguilera who ended up being, I remember him when I was young coming up to the big leagues, how nasty he was out of that pen, yeah. throwing that yeah. fastball split. But yeah. that 86 Mets team, and you know the 30 for 30 is out, and there's four parts to it. I haven't got through them all. But, but I would say <laughs> it would be selling it lightly, saying it, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, <laughs> you won 108. You won 108 games. I didn't even know that yeah. until I looked. I said, yeah. "It's not like this was a fluke. It's not like you won uh, 87 games and ended up winning the World Series. You guys won 108 games, which which right. doesn't happen yeah. very often." But just take me through as much as as you can on that 86 season and uh, just the characters on that team. I mean, I just look at it. Keith Hernandez at first. Uh, I, I mean, there's characters ever all over the place. Well, and that you know, and that city went crazy. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, you know, it was funny. Even like uh, like Ron Darling, you know, he was on on the club, and he he had a little. He threw a cut fastball, and his fastball would run in, and he threw one that would run away, and then he had a he had a splitter, he had a slider, and he had a curveball, and then I saw him, you know, throwing to the catcher. And he'd have the catcher sitting on the inside corner, and the ball would go down the middle or go inside. And so I didn't say nothing to Darling at the time. And uh, 
But uh, I said, just keep throwing what you're throwing. Look at the catcher. And then I went to catcher and I said, look, this guy's got great moving fastball. So when you call the fastball, uh, you can point to a corner, but then sit sit more in the middle with your target. And uh, he did the catcher did that Carter, and he knew what that, that he couldn't he wasn't going to throw it down the middle. It was going to be on the corners, and he was like unhittable from then on. Uh, Sydney, you know, fastball curveball, and you know he was just funky. Nobody could kind of get on top of his fastball because it came out like throwing it out of his uniform. But Doc, Doc was unbelievable. I remember telling Doc, I Doc. Him and um, Randy Myers and um, uh, some other young stud that he pitched with in high school um, in Kingsport. I had him there, and I was just sitting there to as a roaming coach before their manager got there. And I remember having those three guys down the bullpen throwing, and, and they were Myers and uh, other starter were all over the place. Doc came in and was painting the outside corner with his fastball, and he would paint the inside corner. And I asked him, how do you hold your fastball, Doc? And he said, well, across scenes when I'm going to put a little giddy-up on it, and with scenes when I want lateral movement. I said, that'll work. And so, anyway, <laughs> he, he was good from Jump Street. I mean, he had great command, a curveball, fastball, uh, and with stuff in command. Uh, and command being the key word, Remember, like me t- talking to uh, uh, S- uh, Satchel Page when I faced him in Kansas City in '66. After I faced him, he'd walk me. I went up to Satchel and I said after the game, "Satch, you, you had a great arm. You threw all kinds of pitches. What was your best pitch?" And Satchel said, "B pitch." I said, "B pitch. What is a B pitch?" He said, "It be where I want it to be." So <laughs> I used that in, in talking about how important command and control was. But Doc had it from day one. And so when I had him at 17, in, for that little time in, short, spring, uh, in Springfield, I knew that at 18 or 19, he's going to be ready to pitch in the big leagues. No doubt in my mind. Because he had unbelievable stuff, but he had the command to go with it. And so... You know, it was no brainer when I was talking to Cash, and I said, "If you go by on what he does in spring training, we'll see if he makes the club." And I knew he was going to make the club, and he was lights out in spring, and he made the club, and rest history. Um, but losing Mitchell really hurt because then he started getting running with the guys he ran with, got him in trouble, and he had to. Got had a little drug problem in there. Came back. It was all right. The the uh, World Series in '86. Uh, how crazy was that city? Because that's for the most part, I would say it's a Yankee city, but all of a sudden, it's it's a Mets city, and um, yeah. there's just so much buzz around that team. I, I mean, it, it probably has something to do with how it happened. You know, uh, uh, Game Six, two outs. You're one out away from from being done and yeah. uh that big that famous rally comes back ends up going you know with the ground ball going through through buckner's right. leg so that's probably has something to do why that win was so special but but uh well you know it 
We we expected to win. I remember that in that uh, Houston had a great ball club in '86. They they almost mirrored our club because they had Scott, we had Doc, and Stock. Uh, he was damn near unhittable, and uh, so it was a six game. Uh, if we won the six game, we didn't have to face Scott. And you know, like I said, everybody knew it. And I told him, I said, we got to win this ball game. I remember we were uh, three runs down in the ninth inning or something and came back and tied it. And then uh, and then I remember telling Stoudemire, we got one one run up. And I said, Mel, what are you so nervous about? It doesn't get any better than this. And about that time, um, some outfielder for Houston hit a home run to tie the game. But we went on to win it in the next innings. Uh, and I remember um, I had Horasco in the game, and Hernandez came over to him uh, after I was, I'd visited, and he said, if you throw this guy a fastball, I'm going to kill you. And so he, he went back to pitching, and he threw the guy nothing but breaking balls and struck him out. Uh, <laughs> and that was it. Take so me take me game. through. You, you'd won – now you won – two world championships as a player and now the 86 team you win as a manager, any difference or, or equally special? Uh, it's a little more special because as a player, you know, you look at what your role is and uh, what you can do to help the club win. But as a manager, you're, you're just more impressed when everybody's doing something to win. And so when you get it accomplished, it's more of, Man, we did this as a team. This was a great team effort. And uh, so there's actually, from a managing standpoint, as from a player's more pride in seeing the team do it because you, you couldn't do anything individually. All you could do is, you know, make, make a few moves. But uh, that, was a, that was just a great thing. And, uh, of course, the city was, you know, early, even starting in 85, we were – the Yankees would always have 50,000 people over there. Well, when we started winning, you know, in 85, even though we got outscored, and then in 87, we scored a bunch more runs. We were drawing 50,000 people a game. And so we were out doing the Yankees. And so we were kind of at the same time competing for the city who had the best team in the city. And the guys took a lot of pride in that. Then in 87, you win 92 games again, 88, 100, uh, 87, and 89. You left after 1990. Um, between 90, your next, thing, your next gig is you're going to manage the Cincinnati Reds. What would you do from 90 to 93? And how did you get that call to manage the Reds? Well, um, between 90 and 93, uh, um, I did some USA baseball stuff. Um, uh, Paul Seiler called me from USA Baseball mm-hmm. and uh, you know I, I went over to uh, um, the Netherlands and looked at the baseball program there and uh, then I went back because the Netherlands manager had a they were trying to get ready for the World Cup and uh, the manager uh, forget his name was a shortstop for the Yankees and he had a six-year-old son that was very sick. And so they kind of worked it out for me to go over there and manage that club. Uh, 
while he was uh, grieving his son. And so I did that. And then from that, you know, I did uh, my association with uh, USA Baseball. I also managed in uh, in 94, I was assistant coach for uh, the manager in the uh, Olympics in um, Greece. And then uh, in 08, I managed the U.S. team in, uh, in 08. But I also went over there and uh, scouted the uh, World Cup team in Taiwan. But uh, so, and then in between that, I came back home and I got a call from um, uh, the Reds, and to uh, they wanted me to manage that ball club. And so I went up there, and there's no problem. They hired me, and um, I, you know, I got to manage that club, and we were a pretty good club. We, I think, won the division. I don't really remember all of it, but uh, remember I had Ray Knight on the club. He was the third baseman, and um, you know, we had a fun time. And I remember, you... I do remember after. Winning the division or something, um, Marge, she kept writing me notes and stuff, and she would have me up into her office after a series or something. And then, uh, and then one day she just said uh, she wanted Ray Knight to manage. <laughs> it it was a bizarre it was a bizarre time. I remember. I don't know if you remember this, but. 93, I'm playing for the Seattle Mariners. The season ends. I'm playing for Pinella. And uh, about a week or two after the season, I get a call from, you know, you get a call. And, and the protocol in, in big leagues, as, as you know this, I'm, I'm kind of telling the people listening to the, to, the, to the podcast, is you'll get a call from your ball club and they'll say, hey, you've been traded. And then, you know, the protocol is the other team calls, the other general manager calls. Jim Bowden called me and said, Brett, I just want to say congratulations. You traded the Cincinnati Reds. And then I got a call from you. And he said, Brett, this is Davey Johnson, and uh, we're excited to have you. And, you know, I'm just a young player, and I'm just trying. You know, my yeah. hair is on fire. I just want to do good. And I remember yeah. you said to me after our conversation, you said, uh, Brett, is your dad around? And I said, why does he want to talk to my dad? So I happened to be at my dad's house and I handed mm -hmm. the phone to my dad and he went off. And about 10 minutes later, he came back. And he said, how would you feel about me being your bench coach in Cincinnati? <laughs> Davey just offered me the job. And I thought to myself, damn it, Davey, what are you doing? Having my dad. Now my dad's going to be looking, you know, I'm going to be looking over my shoulder. <laughs> and, and my, I feel like I'm in high school again. Yeah. I'll tell you, it ended up being, one of the greatest things for me, I ended up loving it. Uh, dad was mm -hmm. the opposite of everything. It was a professional relationship. It was player coach. He didn't bug me. I went on the road. I hung out with my buddies, whoever, you know, on yeah. that team that my teammates and, and dad was yeah. a consummate professional and you're right. We had some really good teams over there. 94 we're wire to wire first place. And, and, uh, that's the year the strike hit and they ended up yeah. uh, canceling the world series 95. We came back and we won the division. Again, we beat the Dodgers in the first round of the yeah. postseason, And then we got 
beat by a pretty good Atlanta ball club who who went on to win it. Yeah. But I do remember how strange it was. Ray Knight was your third base coach. Yeah. And he was on that, you know, that 86 Mets team. He scored that big run. But the buzz, you know, we're here from the players. We're like, what? wait a minute. Davey's been here, you know, for a few years. And all we've done is win. So why are we talking about hiring Ray Knight in the middle of the season? You know, yeah. I, I think since I got to Cincinnati for that 94-95 season, we were never out of first place. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you're getting these notes from March. The next thing you know, Davies yeah. or uh, Ray's taking over the team. That had to be yeah. pretty, pretty strange for you. Something you'd never seen before. Well, it was strange, but you know, one thing I always, I, I, I never wanted to stand in the way of a player moving to a better spot or a coach getting moving up, you know, into a better spot. And I always, I always was in for that and if uh, ownership wanted somebody not me managing that's fine that was part of the game you know it's just uh, okay good you know uh, Ray's got a lot of roots here and uh, but I wasn't sure that he was going to be that good a manager but I said fine and I was you know I was gone you go to Baltimore Pretty good club you got over there. You won 88 games in 96, 98, 97. You had four Hall of Famers on that team. Mike Mussina, Robbie Alomar. You had, obviously, Cal. You had Harold Baines. And in my eyes, I mean, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but he, he's he got every bit the numbers of any of the guys I mentioned. Uh, Rafael Palmero. How were those yeah. Oriole ball clubs? Well, it was good. When I came over there, um, it was funny, um, they uh, hired me before they had a general manager. And um, and uh, after I was there for a while, and, uh, I uh, told Angelos, uh, uh, they need to hire Pat Gillick as a general manager. And, uh, and I, I called Pat up and said, you need to take the job over there. And I said, we pick up a couple of players and we're going to be tough to beat. And um, I talked uh, him into taking the, general manager's job and then I said well um, I'd like to uh, add uh, Robbie Alomar to the club he was a free agent and so we picked up Alomar and then I I pushed for another player I I think it was uh, uh, I don't know if he was on the club or what is that my ended up being my left fielder left-hand hitter um and he could also play in and feel like third base. But um, anyway, uh, a lot going on in that club because I moved Cal Ripken to third and this other guy at shortstop. And, but we had a good ball club. Oh, uh, did you have Bordick at short? Didn't Bordick go to short? Well, yeah, after we traded for Bordick, first we had some guy, some young 20-year-old that – Ripken didn't think he was the right guy to replace him. I didn't either, but I thought it would be a good move to have have him at third and shortstop open. And it didn't go too well with the rookie I put over there. But then when I got Bordick, Cal went to third, no questions asked. He believed in Bordick. And then we had one hell of an infield. 97, uh, your manager of the year. How was that for you? Because, you know, we've already covered it. 
couple times. Uh, you won a couple World Series with the Baltimore Orioles as a player. It, was it strange coming back to manage that team, or was it was it a, a happy homecoming for you when you went back to the Orioles? Well, it was a happy homecoming. Um, you have so many uh, memories, Baltimore, and being in big games, and um, you know, and I just wanted to, you know, put the best team on the field. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I had a ton of fans there. And, um, I, I didn't uh, have that great a relationship with ownership. Uh, Peter Angelos. Peter Angelos. But um, and we, I had some run-ins with the front office. I remember one time Alomar was arguing in Toronto and got thrown out and I I smoothed it over for everybody, you know, and but Alomar was all over the umpire and he got thrown out and anyway, uh I got it eased over but then uh, Alomar did some he didn't come back after all star break or something for, took an extra day off and I find him one day's pay a ten thousand dollars. That's what Gillick told me he's he said he's made fifty thousand a day. I find him ten. And then Angelos called down and told Elmore not to pay it, that I wasn't running the club. And so I knew then that I was on my way out. If I can't tell a player he's fine if he doesn't show up when he's supposed to be on the field, then I don't, I don't control the players, you know. And so uh, that happened, and um, then I was gone, you know, after the season. You moved over to the Dodgers in 99 and 2000. How was that difference from going from uh, just the two big major markets with the Mets well, in the 80s well, and now you're in L.A.? there was um, I got asked over there by the president of the club um, who owned 50% of it from uh, Murdoch. And the general manager at the time that didn't even talk to me when I was going over there was um, um, was it Malone? Had Malone, Kevin Malone. Yep. And so I, I went in there and I said, "Well, first of all, uh, you got to get some left-hand pitchers on this ball club. You got one, Perez. He, you're not going to beat the Giants and go to your division if you just got one left-hander that can't get left-handers out." And they didn't do anything. And I did say, I said, we we got to have a left-handed bat. And, and I did talk him into trading uh, Mondesi for uh, Green. But um, we didn't have any left-hand pitching, and we got beat up a little bit. And uh, so I hope my term there was going to be short-lived. Head over to the Nationals. In uh, 06, was it, was that, you had Jim Bowden in Cincinnati. Was that Bowden's doing uh, with the Nationals when you went and joined him in the front office? I believe so, yeah. Um, uh, you know, he was easy to talk to. Jim was real easy to talk to. You know, he could talk into anybody and anything. Um, but I liked, uh, I liked the way he, his approach and uh, he took into consideration what the manager was thinking. Uh, and so that was an, a no-brainer. 
and uh, in Nationals was, you know, I came over there uh, really uh, the uh, manager was didn't get extended or something. Uh, Riggleman. Riggleman, right. So you're he, you're in the front office. Extended. You're in the front yeah, office, I'm, and then all of a sudden you're going to go back on the field again in in 2011. Yeah, right. right, and so I went on just to be a replacement for him, finish out the year, and then um, I guess they liked what I did, and then they hired me in for uh, 12 and 13. And, um, 12, we a, 12, your manager of the year. And I believe uh, since they went from um, the Expos to the Nationals, that was the first division title. Um, yeah. That was the year too. Wasn't that the time when when Stra- all that Strasburg stuff was going on that we weren't going to use them? Or- well, yeah. Well, what happened, which I thought was wrong, but I didn't fight it. Um, the year before, um, uh, I had a young pitcher uh, with the Nationals. I forget his name, but they said uh, he had an injury to his arm like two years before that or something. And they said he wasn't going to be able to pitch in the playoffs. I said, okay, fine. All right, I get that. And so in, I, I forget the, the young guy's name, but it was a right-hander. Mm, had good stuff. And uh, But then in the next year, we're cruising along. We're going to win it, the division easily. And uh, the general manager came to me and said, uh, we, can't, we don't want Strasburg to, to pitch in the playoffs. And I said, I, that I didn't understand. I said, well, why is that? Well, we just think you're going to have to throw too many innings. And I said, well, okay. If that's what you want to do, I'm not going to buck the medical staff or anything. But that was a big loss. Uh, he was arguably one of the most dominant pitchers in the league at that time. And uh, so when we we still should have won it, we had a three-game, three-run lead, and I had my closer in there, and he couldn't hold him. And we lost the game. Uh, in extra innings in the last, the fifth game. And then uh, next year I came back and we had a so-so year. I asked for, still asked for a couple left-handers, didn't get them, traded them, and we only won 86, and I was, that was gone. But I enjoyed that. The, yeah, the Strasburg thing, I remember just as, you know, I was an ex-player that I had recently retired, and I remember watching Strasburg and how electric he was and how electric that yeah. arm was. And I heard the buzz going, well, we're not going to pitch him in the postseason. And, you know, how I opened the show with how, how sacred and how tough those World Series are to win. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking, we're going to protect this young man's arm we got a chance to win the world series. You don't know if you'll ever have another chance. And and I remember as a player, that's all that went through my mind is how can you, how can you even uh, think about doing that? When, you know, if there was that close. wrong with him, I could understand it, but there right. wasn't, he was liked out. And uh, I only, I, you know, I had him on a pitch count of, I think at that time, my pitch count was, uh, I wouldn't let a guy throw over a hundred in the start. Um, it used to be 120, and it came down gradually, uh, protecting guys' arms. 
But I was never going to let a pitcher get in that situation where he might throw too many pitches. But And everybody knew that about me, I'm sure. But I just felt like it, the start would be bad for him. But I had to go. You know, it's what my management team wanted and the medical team wanted. So I, I couldn't fight it too bad, you know. But that was a big loss, you know, especially when it went five games and we lost the last one. Uh, so that was tough. After 2013, you leave uh, Nationals. In 1997, uh, you go, I think it is 97. You go into the Orioles Hall of Fame, 2000, or, or was that 2007? You go into the Orioles Hall of Fame, 2010, uh, you get elected to the, to the Mets Hall of Fame. Pretty cool. How were those phone calls? Uh, they were nice. I, you know, I never put much stock in, um, you know, individual goals. Um, you know, I mean, it, it was, I was more, more concerned about, you know, what happened to players that played for me? Did they get just rewards? And, you know, I didn't think much about awards that, that I would get, whether it's a manager year award or, or anything. I was more concerned about, uh, making sure everybody, uh, did well and was, we're going to go on to better and greater things. And I didn't put much stock in a lot of awards. Still don't. Little rapid fire, Davey. I'm going to give you five names. Just give me whatever comes to your mind. Lenny Dykstra. Great leadoff hitter. Crazy as a loon. Um, <laughs> um, he, he, he could dominate a game. You know, he, he knew how to get on. He had a real small strike zone. And, uh, you know, I had many arguments with him, and uh, he was hard-headed as I was. And uh, I would never have traded him because he was a gamer. Daryl Strawberry. Outstanding talent, you know. Um, had it tough being the best player in the Los Angeles area. He grew up without a father. Um, and uh, But just unbelievable talent, you whether it was his arm, his legs, his power, um, just an unbelievable individual and uh, um, like I said, unbelievable talent. He could hit the ball over the left field fence farther than most right-handers. Uh, very gifted talent. Keith Hernandez. He was a true captain of that ball club when I first came there. Um, they had uh, the players had. We agreed to hire him as captain. And then a year after I'm there with Carter, I made Carter a co-captain. But Keith was a leader, uh, def- you know, offensively, defensively. I mean, he used to he used to tell me sometime before I went up there, if he was struggling a little bit, he said, okay, uh, I'll hit my uh, right pocket if I want to hit and run. And so I'd watch him, and he'd give me the sign, and I'd hit the run, and he'd get a base hit, and we were all happy. But he just, he, that low and away pitch to a left-hander, that was right in his wheelhouse because he hit it to left center field. He was just a great hitter, gold glover at first base. He was a true captain of that ball club. He led by example. Cal Ripken. 
just an iron horse. I mean, it, he uh, it's unbelievable. He um, he's gifted gifted player, gifted shortstop. He got a little less range toward the end of his career, but he made all the plays. Um, and you just it's just hard to imagine that you know what the, as rigorous as the schedule was and whatever is that this guy never wanted a day off. He wanted to play every day, and he, I admire him for that. And uh, he, he also led by example. You know, he's, I can't ever remember him having a slump. He was always he got something going for him. Brooks Robinson. Well, when I saw him, when I came up to the Orioles first time in spring training, and I, I saw him taking ground balls, and I went over to ask Brooks, I said, Brooksy, you're taking about 100 ground balls. What in the world is going on? And I said, I, said, um, I mean, you, you're eight-time gold glove or something. He said, well, how do you think I got there? And so immediately I went over there and started taking 100 ground balls at second because I wanted to be just like him. And um, But he led by example. I've never seen anybody with – didn't have a very strong arm, but he could throw it from – without even winding up and get it over to the first base in time. And uh, he never saw a bad hop in his life. He couldn't catch. So he was uh, just unbelievable. And being on the same team with Frank Robinson, who is the ultimate hitter in any situation. Uh, he had a gold glover showing you how to be a great fielder, and he had an offensive player that showed you how to be a great offensive player. So it was a really good group of guys and it's funny when you talk about cal i remember when i played for you in in cincinnati you know i you remember i didn't like days off either and you'd say yeah and i'd say davy i never need a day off ever you said never <laughs> i said never and and i i think uh, and it was even in colorado you came to me and i was just sucking wind i'd played about 95 100 in a row uh -huh. And I was scuffling and you came out of your locker and you looked at me and go, Hey, Booney, uh, how you doing? I said, I'm doing all right. He goes, uh, and you said to me, he said, uh, you need a day off. <laughs> and before it came out of your mouth, I thought, yes, <laughs> yes, I do. Cause I wanted to be like Cal. I mean, I was, yeah. when I was young, man, that's all I want to do was go, go, go. And I said, I'm going to be yeah. Cal Ripken. I'm going to play every day. The more and more I look at that streak and what he did, the more I'm in uh, awe of it. Like yeah, I, I pretty no much, you know, I, I, I posted up 155, 158 games a year, but to do it and not miss a game. How do you, how do you not yeah. sprain your ankle? You know, we've all had those sprained ankles where I don't care no. what you do. You cannot play tomorrow. No, I know. And uh, I know. he got through it. Uh, absolutely amazing. Amazing. No doubt. All right. Close your eyes. What uniform are you wearing? Player or manager? I'd have to say Baltimore. You the skipper or you the, you the second baseman? Wherever you want to put me. All right. All right. <laughs> you know, but, you know, I, that's probably the first time I ever had to answer that question because, you know, I retired in 2013 and I figured I'm a national now for life. But um, if I, you know, uh, it, it, I say that, all my kids were born in Baltimore, and I, you know, I learned to play the game there. Some good people, 
Weaver, Bamberger, those kind of guys. And um, and the way we took pride in how we played was important to me, not only as a player, as a manager. Well, David Johnson, I thank you for coming on the Boone Podcast. It was a pleasure. Uh, Come here, Booney. It's one of the you're the you're one of the best to ever do it. And and uh, I played I played for a lot of of really good managers, high profile guys, and and uh, you taught me a lot. And and at the time, maybe I didn't know I was being taught, but <laughs> when the years went by, I said, "Damn it!" When Davey used to piss me off, he he pushed my buttons on purpose, and and I didn't come to find out that till years later. And I thought, yep. son of a son of a bitch, he was doing that on purpose. And yeah. and I I ended up really appreciating it later in my career, as you know, and as I was mm-hmm. a veteran. Uh, but really, I, I I appreciate that. I appreciate you coming on. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we bring the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, back for a question from the fans. Dan, thanks, gentlemen. Davey, how are you? I'm doing great. All right, this question comes from Lou in Long Island, and it's Davey. What is the one fundamental thing you have to do when you take over a bad ball club and teach it to win? Well, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, uh, you, you can't think it's a bad ball club. You can just you have to look at where you know, the whole roster, the minor league call-ups and everything, and see where there's some areas you can make improvement whether it's defensively or offensively. And uh, what you want to try to do is get a balanced ball club that can, you know, handle left or right pitching and, um, you know, and has a pitching staff that pretty well balanced with a good bullpen with long and short relievers and, and constantly upgrading all those spots. And that's what you do anywhere you go. And, um, you know, it's great to have a great relationship with the GM so that nobody knows the talent on the club more than the manager. And if I'd say, you know, I can't go with Brian Giles, I got to go with Wally Bachman. That may be against everything they're thinking, but if they like you as a manager, they're going to let you make that move. Um, Howard Johnson at th- third base or Howard Johnson at shortstop to get more offense in the lineup. Those are all, you know, I, I, the only time I use Howard Johnson at uh, short, guess the only time I use Howard Johnson short, when Sid Fernandez was pitching, because <laughs> he didn't throw ground balls. <laughs> so all those things come into play when you're trying to uh, help your team offensively and defensively. And uh, it's where you go about it until you get uh, the best you can be each day going into opening day. And then you constantly uh, look at it every day to try to make sure that you have the best nine guys out there. And and, and if you do that every day, you're going to get better. The next one comes from that's, Jeff. That's the name of the game, just getting better. The next one comes from Jeff in Rhode Island, and he wants to know this. Davey, give me one good story about Brett Boone. <laughs> uh, he was a gamer. I'll say that about Brett. He was a gamer. He loved to play. You could always tell that. Uh, I think I liked him because he was cocky as I was. <laughs> and that's saying a lot because you, you had to be one cocky son of a bitch. Uh, but he was. And there wasn't anything that he didn't think he could do on the field. And 
I pretty much agreed with him on that. Um, but he was fun to manage. David Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mailbag. Booner, you know that sound. Uh, ma- mailbag time. I think you, I, I don't know if you said it the right way. Say it one more time. Mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time, Booner. Stick your hand in the bag of it. All right. This one comes from Jimmy in Lockport, and he wants to know this. Brett, you often talk about your dad being a coach when you played. Is that a hidden dream of yours for when, if, if and when your son makes it to the pros? Uh, I think, you know, I think any uh, – the father-son thing is a different uh, – it's just a different dynamic and you never, you never know that until you're a dad and, and then you're, you're facing uh, a situation where that could be a possibility. I, to, to coach your son uh, would be unbelievable. You know, I don't know if I'll ever be in that position. He's got to make it first. You know, I've coached him a lot in his travel ball, but uh, I, I would have to say if that happened and the opportunity was there, it wouldn't even be a question. Um, as far as coaching or, you know, I, I, I consider managing in the future and we'll see where it takes me, but, uh, you know, my whole life's been in this game and I got, I got a lot to give and, uh, we'll see how the, what the future holds. All right. This next one comes from Janine in Utah. And she wants to know, Brett, there are so many funny pranks that get played within locker rooms and dugouts. What's the best one you've ever seen or been a part of? Pranks. I wasn't a big prank guy. I didn't do pranks. I, nothing. I, I mean, nothing was. I, I thought it was great. And everybody's seen this. Um, uh, what was his name? Bell for the Toronto Blue Jays. He had a. He had he had just got to the big leagues and they took his car and he had, you know, you, you know, when you got like the Camry, but you put the rims on it and you got the Dyson because that's all you can afford. Yeah. Well, he came to the big leagues. He had that like the souped up uh, Toyota Camry with the wheels and the rims and, and they drove it on to this, drove it onto the field during like seventh inning stretch. And they, they pretended that they were auctioning his car off <laughs> to a fan. And I remember seeing the look on his face. Now that's good. Cause that's authentic. You know, there's so many pranks that go on and they're, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. We're going to glue this. Uh, I thought the funniest times were how we dress the, the rookies up. And, and some of the outfits. So I, I think one year we made the rookies wear wrestling outfits. You know, the, I mean, oh, the, the leotards, the one with the with the straps over the shoulder <laughs> and the headgear. Now, I thought that was funny. You know, that's funny. You got to have a good sense of humor. I had to do it. I had to. I, I got dressed up in a dress. And uh, where is that pick? Well, in the big leagues, you don't fly commercial. You fly private. And the only people that see you are in the middle of the night. Usually, if you're going from one city to the next, uh, when you get to that hotel in the middle of the night, the, the hotel employees see you. But usually, not too many people see you. Oh, the, the flight attendants, too, on board. 
That's wonderful. All right, well, that's going to do it for this special podcast of the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boone Podcast. That gets taken care of all by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.